Good evening, everyone. Um, good evening to the City of Sacramento's Planning Design Commission, Thursday, uh, September 26, 2017 meeting. Uh, please silence all electronic devices. Um, we'll begin with a roll call vote. Commissioner Bodipo Memba. Lafaso? Here. Coville? Here. Hoffman? Lindsay? Here. Farrell? Here. Pluckybaum? Here. Rogers? Juan Connolly? Here. Yee? Here. Ogilvie? Vice Chair Lucian? Here. Chair Burke? Here. You have a quorum. Thank you. We'll go on to the consent calendar. Item number one, approval of the minutes of October 12, 2017. Perfect. I have a motion to approve from Commissioner Pluckybaum, a second from Commissioner Farrell. Please take the vote. Commissioner LaFaso? Aye. Coville? Aye. Lindsay? Aye. Farrell? Aye. Pluckybaum? Juan Connolly? Aye. Yee? Aye. Vice Chair Lucian? Aye. Chair Burke? Aye. Motion passes. We'll go to item number two, the director's report. I have no items for the director's report this evening. Thank you, Director Cosgrove. We'll go to uh, public hearings. Item number three, uh, ice block sign plan unit development P17-035. Um, any commissioner recusals or um, notifications? Seeing none, we'll start with the staff presentation, Mr. Compton and Mr. Norman. Thank you and good evening, Chair Burke and members of the Planning and Design Commission. My name is Garrett Norman, and I am the project planner for the Ice Blocks <coughs> Planned Unit Development, Signage Planned Unit Development. Before you this evening is a request to establish a planned unit development that establishes a set of signage criteria for on-site signs on the three half block project known as ice blocks, which is located on R Street between 16th and 18th Streets. A PUD requires a recommendation from the Planning and Design Commission to the City Council for final action. The applicant wishes to establish this PUD to create a harmonious and unique sign program that is not allowed within the residential mixed use and office business zones. Given the size of the ice blocks project and proposed land uses, staff supports the proposed PUD guidelines. Staff has not received any opposition to this project and is supportive because it helps create a place of destination within Sacramento's central city with the creation of a cohesive sign standard that allows for iconic name branding sign in addition to pedestrian friendly tenant signage. Staff recommends the commission recommend approval and forward to the city council the resolutions attached to the staff report. Thank you for your time. And the applicant, Mr. Steve Guest, has a few words. Thank you. Garrett, commissioners, I'm Steve Guest with RMW, project architect for Ice Blocks One and author of the PUD guidelines. Uh, we don't have much more to offer than Garrett's presentation. We'd like to thank staff for all their hard work. And uh, I'm joined here tonight by Caitlin Murchison from the Heller Company. We can answer any questions you have. Um, and that's my presentation. Thank you, sir. I have one quick question before we go to other commissioner questions. Just to clarify, 
all the signage is for tenants and it's on site. You're not going to go see an LA Lakers sign there, correct? Not unless the Lakers rent space in the building. Perfect. That's good. Thank you. We have a question for Commissioner LaFasa. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and that was a very good question. A um, couple questions, Mr. Guest. Um, are there going to be awnings on Ice Block 3? Yes, there will be. Okay. There are small ones, yes. Okay. I think one of the, the design schematics suggests that the length or width or projection of the awning is going to be six feet, eight inches. Is that the what's going to be on the... Um, I don't believe it's that big. I'm not the architect for Ice Blocks 3. I knew you were going to say that. Ron Verlacus was. Yeah. Uh, okay. They're like three feet, aren't they? I believe that none of the awnings on Block 3 are greater than three feet. Okay, and, and, I, and I appreciate that, and I asked the question because I think one of the reference points in the rules is the projection of the awning. Um, am I correct that the, oh, what are we got the, there are two kinds of signs that could potentially be illuminated? Well, the, the largest signs are the project identity signs. There's one identity sign location on each block. Ice Block 1's project identity sign is illuminated. On 2, it's a painted sign on the surface of the stair tower. And on Block 3, it doesn't exist yet. Um, it would go on a um, shipping container, like pop-up element that's going to be in the parking lot. There's no entitlement for that yet, but we put it in the sign program so we wouldn't have to come back and do it again. So one of those is illuminated. Um, the um, fascia signs uh -huh. are high on the building. Yeah. Those are for office tenants primarily or larger retail tenants. Um, West Elm, for instance, is one of our tenants. They, they take one of those spots. Um, those can be illuminated, um, but not glowing boxes, they would be halo lit or some other way, indirectly. Um, and then the next level down are the canopy projecting or window signs. Those are geared toward retail tenants and those all can be illuminated uh, through various ways. Appreciate that. And I asked the question, um, I'm going to pivot this question to staff, but we, we keep Having we keep being told that some sign program is going to be the mega sign illustration for future issues like illumination standards and light pollution. From your standpoint, I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about what what what's in the program to prevent light pollution and to manage, you know, that number of signs and potentially that much illumination. Um. Well, most of the signs are required to be indirectly lit or lit with um, light fixtures that are projecting from the building, shining back onto the signs. So I don't think there'll be a lot of light that scatters in, indiscriminately out, emanates from the signs. The sign criteria somewhat controls the lighting. Um, could someone put a giant billboard sign on the side of the building. I don't think we'd allow that because it would be um, a, um, you know, like a, like, a, like a flat screen billboard sign 
we wouldn't allow that. Although the parking garage is part of the Sacramento parking program, and they encourage reader boards for signage, but we're taking a different approach for our parking sign. So we would not have any of those on the project. Okay. But I don't think there's any language that specifically precludes that other than all signs are subject to landlord review and city staff review. So. Okay. You did mention indirect lighting and I'm going to pivot to staff. Okay. And appreciate it. Um, Mr. Garrett, Mr. Compton, uh, light pollution, please discuss. The BUD guidelines um, are regulating more of the size, location, um, and type, um, but it doesn't override the general sign code, um, and we do have sections in 15148 dealing with um, illumination, and so they would be subject to meeting all of that criteria. Are, are those criteria measures of lumens or measures of directness, or what, what, what are those criteria? Um, in here, let's see, I was trying to pull it up as we were just talking, because um, I'm not sure if the answer to that yet. Are you looking for our language? Um, no, I'm looking in the general sign code, um, where it talks about um, citywide requirements for lighting. So if we can maybe put that on the, on the um, shelf and we can come back to that. Uh, appreciate that. One last question. I, I, I guess if I could add. Yeah, please. Under Section 6 in our PUD, signage lighting standards, all lighting for signage shall have a color temperature of between 2700K and 3500K. Internal lighting for signage must be completely concealed and integrated into the sign construction without any visible wiring, exposed lamps, conduit, or electrical boxes. That doesn't necessarily address your issue, but it does limit to some degree what kind of signs we can make. I do appreciate that, and I took notice of the exposed electrical equipment, and that's one of the reasons why I thought signs were illuminated. But you reminded me that in my notes I underlined that color, what was the something? Color temperature? Yeah, what, 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 the, what does that measurement mean? I'm not familiar with that measurement. An old incandescent light bulb is about 2,700K, Elvin. Huh? A really bright, um, Parking lot light out in the suburbs for a, an, a, an open parking uh, lot might be 4,000K. It's really blue light. It least like it because it renders definition very good, but it's not very pleasant light. We trying to keep, frame it in the context of more of a traditional sign light, which would be between 2,700 and 35. These are probably about 3,500K in the ceiling here. So it's just color temperature. So color temperature is a measure of brightness as well as sort of kind of tone, more yellow, more blue? It's tone, not brightness. Okay. Appreciate it. And then we also said that illuminated box signs with metal frames, either surface mounted or projection, will not be allowed. Got it. Uh, thank you very much. I'll, uh, I'll let uh, Mr. Compton continue doing his research. And uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Commissioner LaFaso. Commissioner Wong Conley. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chair. Um, one quick question for the staff. So neon sign is allowed uh, per their PUD, but is that allowed in the citywide program, the um, general requirement? We allow uh, neon unless it's specifically prohibited in certain special planning districts or other guidelines. But yeah, citywide. 
look at the prohibited signs, uh, item P is a sign or non-sign illumination mechanism that contains any of the following uh, neon or neon-like material. So, uh, so that's uh, under under the prohibited sign. Am I reading it wrong? I'm looking at uh, uh, 15.152.120, prohibited signs. You can get back to me on that also. And that's the only question I have for now. Thank you. Thank you, Commissioner Wong Conley. Commissioner Lindsay? Uh, thank you, Mr. Chair. I have a quick question for Mr. Guest. Um, the signage PUD is setting specific criteria, design criteria for signs. So what happens if a, a retail or a product logo does not fit in with your design criteria? How do you handle that with a potential well, All the tenants will receive the sign criteria. I mean, this, this, this started out as a master sign program, which is very typical of a large retail project. We submitted that to the city, and then the city determined that they didn't have a mechanism for approving it because of the way the... SPD overlays over the underlying zoning, and we happen to be on the OB zone, so we're allowed one sign, which doesn't really work for a project like ICE. So we wrote the criteria based on a master sign program. We, I think it would be a... We tried to keep the sign program reasonably flexible and creative. Um, it's very building-specific because it's, it's, we've done the architecture on all the projects, so... The, the program predominantly addresses how the signs integrate with the architecture. The limits on the signs, um, a, a particular logo or, um, you know, a, a, a franchise sign would only be allowed if it fit the criteria. Um, and the, the way it gets approved is the tenants submit to the landlord first, mm -hmm. which is Mike Heller, and once you get past Mike, which is a challenge for most design efforts, then it goes to the, to the city. Mm -hmm. And okay. it'll all be measured by this. I mean, we've been pretty rigorous with the tenants so far in saying, you know, the sign program is coming. Adapt. Um, it needs to be. And actually, West Elm came to us first, so we were mm -hmm. able to structure the sign program around the West Elm signage to some degree. Okay, so... so, so and they've actually Potential. come back to us with yeah. more signs than they asked for, and we said no because it didn't fit the criteria that we wrote around their original proposal. So, so potential uh, tenants will know in advance that either a color, a specific color, or a type of logo might not be accepted. Correct. Well, okay. I don't think there's a there would be a, I don't th I can't think of a of a of a situation that wouldn't be accepted based on color and logo design. Okay. But their, their, their criteria on, on the nature of the signs, how big they are, you know, normal sign criteria. Okay, thank you. And they'd you. have to follow that. Thank you. So just to, to clarify, the, the section that I was trying to find in the sign code uh, was 15148640. And it talks about no sign sh shall be permitted, which because of its intensity of light constitutes a nuisance or hazard. 
to vehicular traffic, pedestrians, or adjacent properties. So this particular code section doesn't specify an intensity in like lumens or anything like that. It's more, I think, subjective, but it's, uh, it's in the general sign code. And then in relation to the other sign code for, um, for the neon, I, I note that it says that the neon cannot outline a building, um, but it didn't say anything about not being able to incorporate neon into signage. So we do have certain areas of the city where that may be prohibited, um, but in general, if it goes with the design of the building and it's appropriate, we've allowed it. Yes, Commissioner Wong-Kali. So that provision talks about the special, oh, the spe uh, a special sign district. Could you give me an example what district that the neon sign is not, uh, is categorized as, oh, the special district, special sign district? We've had um, in the past some special planning districts. I think with a lot of our streamlining, we've removed a lot of special signage um, sections from like the R Street corridor or other special planning districts. We've tried to incorporate all of them either in a set of our design guidelines or in the actual Title 15 uh, signage just for clarity. So it's either like in a in the specific PUD for signage, it's in the sign code section, Title 15. But um, like I said, in the past, we've had remnants where it was in other um, special planning districts. And I've seen things where they've uh, prohibited neon signage um, in some of those guidelines, but that doesn't apply here. But to your knowledge, our street uh, uh, corridor, it doesn't belong to this special district for old sign district. The R street corridor has a special planning district. It's silent on signage. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Commissioner Wong colleague. Commissioner LaFosso. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Uh, Compton, uh, sorry, Mr. Compton, uh, nuisance. Does that mean that uh, you're not invoking nuisance tort law? That means if somebody has an application for a sign and city staff decides they think it's the nuisance as you describe, that's a basis for staff to deny and that's the way that process goes. Right, I mean, we would we would look at that as part of the consideration, but I, I would note here, you know, for these blocks, um, one and three in particular, I mean, it's commercial, it's along the 16th Street corridor. You know, if it was adjacent to a single family, you know, unit dwelling subdivision or something like that, in our review of the PUD guidelines, we would have probably been a, a little bit more um, strict but given its location and the desire to kind of create this entertainment-like district, we felt it was appropriate. Okay, I wasn't questioning the application in this context. I'm just trying to understand the application of the rule in general. Um, so the, the examination of nuisance is the basis for a staff denial. If you're asking, is there anything particular in our signage code which would limit the intensity or brightness of lighting, it wouldn't be in the planning section nor in the general sign code. I think there might be some rules in the building department regarding electrical, their review. Um, I don't know those off the top of my head. Um, 
Okay. But I mean, as far as intensity, that's the section that, as a, a planner, that I would apply if I thought that there would be an issue. Sorry, what would you apply? The, the section relating to the nuisance that's in Title 15. Okay, that was the question. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Thank you, Commissioner LaFossa. Seeing no more uh, commissioner questions or comments, um, we'll take public comment. Thank you so much, sir. Anyone from the public who wants to speak on this matter? There are comment cards in the back. Okay, seeing no public comment. Any commissioner motions, additional questions? Commissioner Fossil. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I love the ice. I love the ice. Okay, I'm turning my mic on. Leave it alone, please. <laughs> I love the ice blocks. I just want to know the rules. I move the staff recommendation. Second. Perfect. I got a, a motion from Commissioner Fossil, second from Commissioner Juan Conley. Ready for a vote. Commissioner Yee? Aye. Juan Connolly? Aye. Bucky Bomb? Aye. Farrell? Aye. Lindsay? Aye. Coville? Aye. Lafasso? Aye. Vice Chair Lucian? Aye. Chair Burke? Aye. Motion passes. Thank you. We'll go to item number four, the 60, 66, 65th Street Apartments, DR 17 220. Any commissioner recusals, uh, comments? Okay. Uh, we'll go to Mr. Hannibut for the staff presentation. Thank you, Chair Burke and members of the commission. <clears throat> My name is Michael Hannibut with the Community Development Department. I'm here to present the 65th Street Apartments Mixed Use Project, which is located along 65th Street between Folsom Boulevard and Elvis Avenue here. The site totals 0.75 acres and consists of vacant buildings and surface parking lot. The project is a six-story mixed-use building with 90 apartments and approximately 2,800 square feet of retail on the ground floor. The building includes a mix of apartment sizes from studios to four bedrooms and also includes a second level outdoor terrace for common open space. Interior corner units also include balconies for private open space. Parking is provided behind the retail fronting 65th Street with access to the garage from the southern alley. Three bicycle corrals are also within the garage with additional bicycle parking amenities provided within each unit. The proposed project requires site plan and design review approval with the deviations for height, front setback, and open space. The staff has reviewed the project design in urban form and finds it to be appropriate given its proximity to Sac State and light rail. Staff has received letters of support for the project from various groups with minor suggestions for the project and feasible solutions were integrated into the project design to address these. To conclude, staff supports the project as conditioned because it is consistent with the goals and policies of the general plan, appropriate transit village plan, and zoning. The design provides a robust articulation of materials and colors for each side of the building, incorporates a large and well-programmed outdoor space, and engages the street with retail along 65th. That concludes my presentation, and staff is available for any questions. I now want to hand it over to the applicant to provide a brief presentation. 
Chair Burke, members of the Commission, my name is Philip Harvey with Cushman Architects representing TriCap Development, uh, the developers of the project. It's actually TriCap Partners 65 LLC, sorry for that. Um, so basically we're very pleased to be here tonight to present uh, what we hope is the first of a major component in the 65th Street Transit Village where the city's goals and policies were established some years ago to promote higher density development around the 65th Street Transit Center and the approach to Sacramento State University. It's, it's a very important to note that this project sits almost halfway between both the, the light rail station at 65th Street and the tunnel that leads to Sacramento State University. In fact, this will be the closest apartment project that will be available for students that will be within a three-minute walk of the campus and will enter in right at the athletic fields and the recreational facilities on the campus as well as the center of the university itself. So we're very pleased that a three-quarter acre site can provide 90 units of housing for students and including um, the things that they expect today are major amenities. Any of those of you who've had students in college, you know that housing is a huge issue for them and that this facility um, has the density and the support to bring a major component of housing close to the university and transit and to help promote the 65th transit area and help to grow the, the area around there for the university itself. There is significant other infrastructure in there, as you're well aware with the F65 project. There's restaurants, um, there's a Staples in there, there's athletic facilities, there's a current gym that was just opened recently by Uriah Faber just around the street. And then, of course, it extends to the south. Unlike the other projects south of 50, the foundation and the element, this one has the obvious advantage of being within a very short walking distance to the university. So it is a, um, it's a six-story building, one-story concrete podium with parking underneath. We do meet the city's parking requirement of one space per every two units. And then we also have abundant bicycle parking. We responded to comments by the bicycles, uh, Saba, the bicycle advocates, for more bicycle parking by actually uh, agreeing to a condition to add one to two bicycle hooks within or racks within each one of the units. The reality is that um, we can provide all the secured bicycle port parking on the ground floor for the students, and we, we, we meet the criteria for that in the city ordinance. However, a lot of students will bring bikes to the campus into living there that are of a, a, let's say, of a quality and a cost that they're not, they're reticent to put it into a secured joint locker facility. So we, we provide uh, areas on each unit where they can park their bike up there as well. So we try to control that. Um, it is served by ground floor amenities, which help to connect the building to the street. It has a commercial area in it, as well as a lounge, study areas, and things that are on the street, as well as the center aisle above the entry has study rooms on each floor that overlook the street. And then the interior space has about a 5,000 square foot podium um, recreational area that will have um, both active and passive recreation areas for the, the residents. So um, with that, we're very pleased that we're bringing a three-quarter acre project into this area of the city with 90 units for students and the amenities that will help make this project a success. And I want to say that we greatly appreciate working with your staff, Michael and uh, Zara, at the Transportation Engineering as well. So we worked, we worked hard with them to meet the criteria of the transit corridor and the right-of-way. We're providing the 15-foot pedestrian zone in front of the buildings that's required in the transit um, plan and um, as well as the bicycle lane we're, we're going to be improving in front right now it's just a basic six foot wide bicycle lane we'll be going to eight feet with a, a barrier to help uh, promote bicycle safety in front of the uh, project as well so with that have any questions
Not one. Mr. Harvey, well, I wanted to, <laughs> Commissioner LaFazzo, we have a question. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I wanted to let someone else go first, but they all like me to go first. They really do. Um, thank you, uh, Mr. Harvey, especially for noting the cool stuff that's happening in this up-and-coming area. Thank you. Um, you're welcome. Um, in your planning or business modeling, do you anticipate most of these units being rented by students, do you, you anticipate a mix? I noticed that, I don't know, maybe 40% of the units are one bedroom and then you got a good mix? Yeah, so, so the reality is that it's not restricted to students and what happens in a lot of these facilities, we're doing another one that, uh, over uh, on the other side at University River Village. So what happens is that you'll get predominantly students and they'll, like you said, uh, Commissioner LaFazza, they will be in the, the larger rooms. But there's a lot of people who have recently graduated from college or are professors on short-term basis that look for housing, or um, people who aren't just willing to leave that college environment yet but are working in the downtown or something. So that, that's one of the reasons the one-bedrooms are very um, conducive to that, or, or maybe even a married couple that would move into a, a one-bedroom and still go to school. So, so we work really hard on the balance with um, noted, um, noted uh, architects and student housing nationally as well as national developers. So it's, it's, a, it's a little bit of a different market, but you, you hit it on the head. It's not restricted, and they will get some other people who live here who are not necessarily students. Appreciate that. Um, one last question, and it's uh, appreciate the bike hooks. So I, I, I had a thing with uh, Mr. Hannibut about the maps that I got resolved before the meeting, and it looks like that space that Saba wanted to be a little bit bigger. Looks like it's like four to five feet. They want six feet. Right. We, yeah, and we did increase the access area into the bike off of, it's directly off 65th Street now. You go right down, there's a five-foot-wide walkway right to the bicycle storage area in the, in the garage. There's two other remote bicycles, bicycle storage for more long-term on the other side of the garage, on the alley side, though. So, okay, yes. appreciate that. Yeah. I, I did want to ask staff a question about the crosswalk and the lighting issues that Walk Sacramento raised. Do you want to comment before I go to? Sure. Um, we actually walked the site with, with the engineers, and the problem is the crosswalk that was brought up by Walk Sacramento that would go be on the south side of the intersection of 65th and Elvis, it's unsafe because you have a curve coming around and you have a stoplight. You don't have a stoplight on the north side. It doesn't warrant a stoplight. So cars coming south wouldn't see people crossing the sidewalk on the south side of that intersection. So what it requires you to do is go across 65th and then cross Elvis on the north side. So we did look into that. And it was, the city does not think it's safe to have a crosswalk on the south side of that intersection. And I'm sorry, when you said cars coming south, you meant cars coming from the from south? From Elvis, well, coming down Elvis towards the south. And there's a slight curve there and you can't really see around. There's a the little restaurant in the corner and then up back there, it blocks the view of people coming south. So it does have a left, a right turn dedicated lane, and there's a, a straight through lane. And I've walked it several times, and it's I wouldn't want to step out of that that cross that intersection on I that will, side. I will admit my only experience with that intersection is as a motorist and a cyclist. I've never walked uh, it. Elvis is kind of an expressway, kind of not an expressway. So I think it's yeah, I, I understand what you're saying. Walk Sacramento seemed to be interested a little bit more illuminated lighting along Elvis. Any comment on that? Not really. We think it's kind of beyond the scope of the project at hand. So. Mm. I thought they wanted it from the project, but appreciate your response. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman.
Thank you, Commissioner Faso. Commissioner Wong Conley. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Uh, so, Mr. Harvey, can, could you explain uh, what uh, did you do for the alley activation? Um, well, for one thing, um, the alley, our parking garage does have grills that are open to the alley, so it's not totally closed off from the alley from the first floor. But the second floor is the outdoor space on the podium that looks over the alley, and SAC Union Brewers on the other side of the alley as well. So we do have, and then all the way up and down the building. I noticed in, in one of them, I think it was Walk Sacramento, we don't, we, we have living rooms and living spaces that look on all sides of the building. So you'll have living rooms all the way up, living spaces up, as well as bedrooms up the, um, that side of the building that we'll be looking at on the alley area as well. So you'll be able to see right from the second floor down onto the alley itself. So the alley is pretty well used by the surrounding uh, businesses as well. They have various things in the alley. And uh, so we definitely want to be able to see and help control. There's been a lot of, of homelessness sleeping in the alley, and we're hoping that will change when we have the facility here and people are actually looking down and seeing what's going on. So. Okay, thank you. And another question. Oh, we will, I should mention we will have lighting on the alley, too, from the building. So it will it'll light up the alley now. That's great. And a uh, question for the staff. So um, is it a common for um, the for public work to request or the planning to request the uh, property owner to um, dedicate a part of their property so you can build the wider sidewalk, but meanwhile you're dealing with have to grant the, the um, setback deviation because uh, apparently their lot has been narrowed so they couldn't set back the top of uh, upper floor. So could you uh, explain that what's the city's position So correct me if I'm wrong, Public Works. Um, we, uh, it is typical to ask for a dedication if we have an adopted street section that's wider than what's existing out there. So this is to comply with um, a street section that's been adopted by City Council for the 65th Street area. Um, and certainly given the dimensions of the parcel um, that we, when we looked at the, the, the setback deviation request, it's perfectly reasonable given the, the depth of this parcel um, uh, for that deviation. Uh, so you're saying that the dedication is per the 65th, uh, um, the, the specific plan that they have to dedicate that part of land? Exactly. We already have an adopted street section for, for this area, and we're just um, making sure to comply with that. Okay. understand. Thank you. Thank you, Commissioner Wong Conley. Commissioner Pluckybaum? So because Todd's not here, I get to ask the parking questions. <laughs> you have, uh, was it 45 parking spots? I'm sorry, I scrolled away while we were... Uh, 46, 46. 46. We have 90 units and 46 parking spaces. Are any of those... Um, Parking spaces, vehicular parking spaces, plan to be um, uh, have charging stations for plug-in electric vehicles. We have talked about having the opportunity to have charging stations in the future. Yes. How many opportunities have you talked about? About two to three. Two to three. Would you be open to four? Um, I guess we would be open to four. <laughs> I, I think it's going to be really important. I think your your sure. tenants will find it to be an amenity. Um, if that's a condition that you'd be willing to accept, I'd, 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 I'd greatly uh, encourage you to, to consider that. You can talk with the applicant after I'm done. And because Alex isn't here, I get to ask the bike question that, that Alan didn't ask, which is um, enclosed uh, bike parking. Are you planning on providing any enclosed bike parking? Oh, yes, we have. We meet the ordinance for the enclosed bicycle parking area. Um, so we have, I can't remember what it is, 
two spaces per unit or one? But yeah, we did meet the ordinance for the enclosed. We were asked by um, uh, the Sacramento Bicycle Advocates to add more. So our, our response was to put the bicycle parking. So typically in apartments like this, you'd have a balcony or something and people would park their bikes out of the balcony if they didn't want to leave them in the secured area in the ground floor. But in this case, we don't have balconies. So um, we put the, the bicycle hooks inside the, the units themselves so they can take their bike up to the unit. I'm sorry, I should have been clear. I know you have the racks and the, the secured space. I was thinking about those um, big like storage container looking enclosures that people can- uh, Ours are enclosed inside the parking garage. So you, you're relying on the- so th Yes. So you'll have common access to, tenants will have common access to each other's bikes, but no one from outside the facility will have access Correct. to them. Yes. So my question is, is there a consideration to provide um, enclosed bike parking for individual bikes so you could just roll your bike into a little slot, lock the door, and then no one can- No, we do bike? not have bicycle bins. We have short-term parking out in front of the building, but we don't have uh, the bicycle bins that are available for other people. So, okay. I mean, if you're a management person or something like here, you can use the secured bicycle parking as well. Okay. Well, um, please talk that over with, with the applicant and see if there's any um, willingness to do uh, the, the plug-in vehicle charging station. I, I think that'd be worth considering. Thank you, Commissioner Plucky-Baum. Com Commissioner Yee? Thank you. Uh, I'm looking at a rendering. Uh, it, it looks like perhaps the southwest corner is on page uh, N043 on a staff report. And it is... I think while that view is representational of what we'll see on a 65th Street, and knowing that there is retail down uh, mm -hmm. those cases, right? How do you see signage working at that particular elevation? It seems at this point, and I recognize it's still a little bit early right. in some of the detail development. Uh, where, where are the signage opportunities for? We we haven't really done that yet. We, we will come back in for a future sign ordinance, but probably or sign permit. What we're probably thinking is that the signage would be on the canopy itself that comes out from the, so we'd have signs up on top of the canopy. So, okay. Yeah. Thank you. Not, not on the building itself. So. Thank you. I think that's what you were getting at, right, Commissioner? Thank you so much, Commissioner. I have a quick question. Um, I noticed there's also, we talked about a, you're going to have one community, two community assistants and one on-site manager mm -hmm. maybe you want to talk about the roles of that and sure. some other duties and my second question is um i look at the kind of the mix you have of the dwelling units and the four bedrooms what was the thinking behind that um we got to that number um let me take the, the unit mix first the unit mix was really based upon the criteria that we had we had developed over some period of time talking with other developers and the type of units that you get here so the four bedroom units with the you tend to get more people who come together that want to rent an apartment together. But they also have a management organization that will put roommates together in, in the facility, so they'll do that. And then the one bedrooms are obviously, if, if the student or the professor or the graduate student wants to be by themselves, they have a little bit more of an opportunity to do that. So we try to find a real, real balance of that as much as possible. Um, so that's kind of where that came from. We didn't want a home, we, we didn't want it to all be four bed units, because that can create more of a dormitory atmosphere, not more of a community atmosphere that we're really searching for here. Um, the other question, oh, the CAs versus, okay, so they, they will have a property organization here and they will have a property manager who lives on the site and works there. That's state law, anything over 16 units, you have to have an on-site property manager. But they will they will be there full time. And, and their, their role is really to manage the property and make sure that 
if something gets broken, they take care of it or that kind of thing or help with, you know, we'll have a, a package concierge system, we'll have a mail system, they'll have a breakfast bar, th those kind of things that a property manager, he will have a staff that will be there during the day too that will have leasing and, and other responsibilities, but that, that person lives on the site um, full time. And then the two CAs are basically, uh, we all remember them on campuses as residence assistants who are there to help uh, the students with any issues or concerns they have and, you know, to help promote a sense of community and, and to help take care of their, their needs on a more personal and, and daily uh, student type basis. So. That's kind of the breakdown of the two type of operations going on here. Fantastic. I'm glad to hear that there's kind of a management kind of yes. mechanism. I, I hate my roommate from college. I'm glad I was not his landlord <laughs> to this day. I'm glad I was not. He was not my, my tenant. And, you know, I'm just worried about we have these four bedrooms. Sure. One of the students is all of a sudden landlord to three others, and it gets a little messy. Yeah, unfortunately, <laughs> the days have changed since I was in dorms, but I understand they like to go in their rooms and be by themselves and close the drapes and just be by themselves and on their computers all the time, so. Fantastic. Yeah. Com Commissioner Pluckybaum? Follow-up follow question on the bike parking. Um, will there be surveillance on the, um, yes. the bike cage? So, so in, inside the cage itself, not just on the yes. access? Point. inside and outside. Okay, that more or less we'll have, my concern. We'll have surveillance in the parking area as well. Okay, well, and since you brought up the internet, how, how much bandwidth are you planning on bringing to the site? Now you're asking me something that's way out of my. <laughs> It'll be important to this because those are always important. Whatever fact, it is, you need more. Actually, the more that we do these, and the more um, even apartments these days, we don't wire them for TV anymore. It's all done on the internet, so it's it's more and more common to put the extra money into the Wi-Fi and the bandwidth than it is into the television or the rest of the system. Let the let the record reflect. Cornelius's roommate hated him too. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Commissioner Flaybaugh. Thank you, Mr. Harvey. Thank you very much. Thank you, Commissioners. We appreciate it. Any public comment on this item? Please step forward. There are comment cards in the back you can fill out. Okay. Seeing no public uh, comment on item number four. Any Commissioner motions, comments? Commissioner Pluckybaum? Would you be open to a condition to four, four plug-in electric vehicle charging stations? Yeah, we study that to make sure that we don't I'm confident you can, but, but I'm, I'm happy to put a feasibility. Yeah, uh, yep. Oh, no, don't come back. The, 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 <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Yeah, no, that's fine. So if, if feasible for, for plug-in vehicle. Yeah, I, I think the applicant means that, or the, the developer means they'd be happy to come back and work with staff yep, if, if feasible go. to have, yeah. not necessarily come back to the commission. Yeah, thank you. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Commissioner Pluckybaum. Uh, oh, oh sorry. go back. I'll move staff recommendation with the condition for uh, four plug-in vehicle charging stations, if feasible. Okay. For a second. Uh, sorry, uh, Commissioner Wong Collins is second on that motion. Um, thank you, uh, Commissioner Falls. You have a question or a motion? Uh, comment. Did it again. What's a comment. Question, two questions. Commissioner Pluckabom, I'm sorry, it was four charging stations if feasible? Okay. Um, 10%. Okay. Um, not the question I queued up for, but um, Mr. Compton, Mr. Hannibal, what, what, what's the, what are our underlying rule or guideline for charging stations? 
I'm not aware of anything in our planning and development code regulating that. We obviously have um, code requirements for width and depth and, and move, maneuvering area of parking spaces. So I think as a, a part of the review, we'll ask them to provide us with uh, some different systems and um, look at the site plan and just look at the, the fit standards to make sure that it, it all works and that they still maintain all the minimum code requirements. Okay, I guess I'm suggesting that maybe we should have some. All due respect to Commissioner Pluckabom, it seems to me that the presence of charging stations seems to be a serendipitous uh, outcome of which commissioner happens to be present on a given night, and that's uh, a bad way to make policy. Nothing I say suggests I'm not in favor of charging stations, but I think we ought to be more intentional about it. Um, the reason I queued up was to comment I want to uh, commend Mr. Hannibut for his uh, uh, elegant mastery of design commentary and the ability to verbalize design principles. I'm sorry Mr. Monaghan isn't um, here, but given that he is another great design articulator, I'm sure he would be proud to hear you say that. Um, I was going to give you a hard time about um, the design drawings and the revised staff report, but you cut me off at the pass before the meeting started. But um, you do owe me an answer to a question for that. Um, there's a discussion about open space on page, I think it's 18, talking about certain uh, interior space not being countable to the open space requirement. I wasn't sure what that was. I'm not, was is that the outdoor terrace on the second level? Is that countable open space? Was it, what, what is the... What is the open space that doesn't apply to the open space rule and why doesn't it apply to the rule? So the code uh, has a definition of open space as being open to the sky and so that's why the balconies and the terrace are counted in the open space calculation. The other um, amenity spaces indoors on the first floor um, again, aren't counted in that calculation, but are noted as additional um, space, common space for the residents. Okay, that's very helpful. Open to the sky. I'm leaving a marker for item six. Um, just because I'm in a mood, uh, I think the last time we really drilled down on open space was on I-15 and uh, Former Commissioner Phil Harvey said a lot of things about Juliet balconies, and somebody else wanted them. And I'm not asking him about them. I'm just being mischievous and saying that. I, uh, I'll support the motion. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Commissioner Lafaso. Director Kazov, do you have a comment? I do have a comment. Um, Commissioner Lafaso, your, your question about EV standards is timely because we do have an item coming to the commission um, uh, at our next meeting related to um, the city's draft EV strategy. Um, so there will be conversation with the city's um, sustainability manager, Jennifer, Jennifer Venema, out of Public Works, to discuss uh, the proposal which will be going to council later this month, or later no in November. Thank you very much. Thank you. And we have a motion from Commissioner Pluckybaum and a second from Commissioner Juan Conley. We'll take a vote on that. Commissioner LaFaso? Aye. Coville? I and, and my roommate was my best man, so just want to say <laughs> Commissioner Lindsay? Aye. Farrell? Aye. Lucky Bomb? Aye. Juan Connolly? Aye. Yee? Aye. 
Vice Chair Lucian? I and my roommate is my boss. Ooh. <laughs> Chair Burke? I. Motion passes. <laughs> <laughs> All right, our next item is item number five, Expedition Boulevard Commercial, P15-071. Uh, any commissioner recusals, ex parte com conversations? Seeing none, we'll start with the staff presentation. Mr. Norman. Hello again. My name is Garrett Norman. I am the project planner for the Exposition Boulevard Commercial Project. Before you this evening is a request for entitlement to construct one 2,500-square-foot single-tenant restaurant with drive-through service and one 3,500-square-foot multi-tenant retail building. The requested entitlements include a tentative parcel map to subdivide a 1.2-acre parcel into two, a conditional use permit to operate a drive-through restaurant, site plan design review of the tentative parcel map and for the construction of two commercial buildings and associated site work, and an amendment to the Point West Plan Unit Development Guidelines related to signs to allow for a pylon sign on the subject property. Staff has not received opposition on this project and considers it to be non-controversial. Staff is supportive of this project because it meets general plan policy related to diversifying regional mixed-use centers that offer retail services close to large employment-generating and residential uses. Furthermore, this is an infill development project that will activate a vacant and underutilized parcel at the corner of the Exposition Boulevard thoroughfare and Challenge Way. Staff recommends the Commission approve the project based on the findings of fact and subject to the conditions of approval attached to the staff report. Uh, thank you for your time, and now I'll turn it over to the applicant for a brief presentation. Hi, uh, my name is Lex Kofroth. I'm the architect for the project, and um, just want to come forward. We have uh, our development team here, the owner Kirk Doyle. We have a, a Starbucks representative who's the restaurant, and we have our leasing agent, which is uh, Rick Martinez, plus uh, our uh, civil engineer. Um, this has been quite a, a large, uh, long development process. It's kind of a unique site. It's kind of an awkward double pie site. And we've worked um, you know, quite a long time. We had quite a few revisions. Worked with uh, uh, transportation, especially on the uh, double drive-through that we added to make sure we had enough stacking distance. And um, uh, we're happy with how how the project is developed. And uh, we think we've done a really good job. And we're happy with the whole thing. I'd be more than pleased to answer any questions you have. Keep it short and sweet. Thank you, sir. Mm -hmm. Seeing no commissioner questions or comments, um, we'll go to public comment. Anyone from Oh, Commissioner Wong Collin? Uh, thank sorry. you, Mr. Chair. Very quick question. So, Walk Sacramento made a comment and suggests adding one um, pedestrian access, uh, which is a zig line at um, north. And then um, the comment, the response is uh, that's uh, not within the property lines. I'm sorry, uh, Walk Sacramento made yes. a, uh -huh. and then the response, at least from the staff report, said that this is a, 
um, the proposed uh, pedestrian access wouldn't be within the property line, so it's not uh, proper to add it on this project. But I'm just looking at the property line. It looks like it's a majority. It is within the property line. I'm looking at uh, page uh, 16 of the report, figure 7. Uh, could you please explain what's the reason sure. that it's not proper? Uh, when we received the uh, walk Sacramento comment, we actually did add a connection to Challenge Way, um, which is on the um, uh, west side of the property. The other two um, uh, areas that Walk Sacramento indicated were at the northern tip of the property or right at the triangle. There is an existing walkway that goes on the uh, north side of the firehouse, which connects Challenge Way into the um, existing shopping center where Hobby Lobby is. And uh, that entirely is off of off our property. So to connect it, there would be a, a distance that we wouldn't control that uh, we would have to obtain rights to um, get for that property. And we, we have contacted the owner, and um, they were less than agreeable to it. We did also add, they had one other comment, which was a connection on the east side of the property. Uh, there's existing parking on the uh, west side of where Hobby Lobby is that's uh, essentially never used, but it's there. There's a um, staircase that leads across. So what we did is um, modified uh, our, our planner area at the north um, east um, Point of the retail building that we have. We added a ramp there and some uh, um, stamped concrete to illustrate where the um, connection would be so that someone that would come across there would have an easier way of getting into our site. And to, to, to what we could do, that's we did as much as we could. We okay. felt. Thank you. Okay. Thank you, Commissioner Wankali. Commissioner Fossil. Thank you, Mr. Chair. I have two questions for Public Works. I heard they might be here for my questions. Sorry. For that, you got data and everything. One, uh, one general, one specific. Um, you, you weren't the individual here, but the last time we had a um, had a drive-through matter, uh, Public Works indicated that you all have trip generation data that distinguishes what the chip generate trip generation would be if the restaurant were drive through versus not a drive through um, are are you familiar with what i'm referring to i'm not familiar with exactly what you're referring to but i can answer a question like general if you want so for the normally the trip generation data we normally use the it trip generation standards and they will have they have already like standards for restaurant with drive through and restaurant without drive through so that's the way we have been handling projects is getting some estimate from the trip generation manual and doing some adjustment depending on the location of the restaurant okay so it's more a it's more a model figure from a when you say adjustment can you give me an example of uh, of a data point you might use to adjust the model data? The adjustment normally depends like if you have a drive-through restaurant, IT will, will allow us to use like some kind of pass by trips, which mean people who's already, you know, passing by the location 
they will stop by at the restaurant and then keep going. So it's not like new trips to that location. Other locations might have, like, if you have very close, like, transit station, you might give them some adjustment for transit trips. So these kind of adjustment that we normally get. Okay. Um, I appreciate that very much. I was uh, suggesting to planning staff just on some of the other drive-through issues we talk about, it might be useful to include more of that in staff reports. Since you tell me it's kind of generated for a model, I'm not sure how specific the data is, so I'll reconsider my suggestion from the prior meeting, but I appreciate all that. Um, another public, so I'm relatively familiar with this intersection. Mm -hmm. Exposition Boulevard's pretty busy and it's got a double left turn lane. And if I understand the entry point is an existing, the entry point to the proposed Starbucks is would be an existing curb cut on challenge that presumably one coming from the west would get into the the outside left turn lane so some was so when the individual made the turn they would be along the right of of challenge road as they made the turn um what the, the side here side plan <clears throat> Yeah, the, the... So the entrance will be mainly from Challenge Way. People can be making right turn lane. Yeah. Or they will have the opportunity to make left turn lane if they are heading southbound. Okay. I'm, I'm imagining coming from the west because that's where I tend to come. Where I'm going is, this is a funny little space because shortly after the left turn, is the red is the red light for response road and I'm familiar with it because this is where I go to Kaiser mm -hmm. there's some funny congestion in that area and I'm just I, I don't know the area seems a little peculiar to me and I'm wondering if if you all gave it any specific consideration given how given how quickly the response road traffic light is to the major left turn traffic light Actually, we had some count for that location and the volume for it so we looked at it it's level of service A and B mainly. So there will be like, especially these kind of, uh, you know, development is like for Starbucks or coffee shop, mainly it will be morning traffic, which is a little bit different than the overall for that area. This area mainly is congested during the BM. So the BM traffic will be, trip generation will be lower than the AM. So that's what we have consideration for that. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Commissioner Faso. Commissioner Pluckybaum. Oh. It says Commissioner Kaufman, but that's me. Oh. <laughs> Commissioner Koval. I, I just want to state that uh, I know that corner very well for many years. Some of you may remember it was Epimondanda's, uh, which was a nightclub that Epi Johnson owned, um, which used, of course, it, granted it was a few years ago, it might be a little different, but, and then it was a Carlos Murphy's. It was so many different big restaurants and stuff, so um, I feel comfortable that the traffic's probably not going to be a problem with it, given its prior uses didn't have a problem. Thank you, Commissioner Colville. I, I have one quick question for the applicant or staff. Hours of operation for the Starbucks, I don't, what was that in the staff report?
I don't think it is. No, uh, the hours of operation are not listed within the staff report. Um, and I didn't have a conversation with the applicant either on their proposed hours of operation. Starbucks 24-7 now? Do you mind stepping? If you'd like the ability to operate 24-7, I don't believe any of our stores in this market are open 24 hours. If you look at this location, is it a potential 24-hour location? Is there any it's not. ballpark hours? You I don't know. Yeah, typically they're at, uh, I think they're from 5 till 10 or 11. Oh, I'm sorry. Were you asking what the yes. typical hours is for yeah, Starbucks? Yeah. Yeah, so here um, we probably want to be open uh, at 4.30 and probably um, close no later than 11. Thank you. Commissioner Wong Conley. I think, Ms. Sher, I forgot one question. How many seats are uh, in the Starbucks provided? Um, Starbucks will, um, let's see, I'm not certain about it. Starbucks is actually, will do the interior tenant improvement plan within that. They do have a preliminary plan. I believe it's within the interior, it's, probably 25 or 30. What we did do was provided a very large um, exterior plaza on the outside because they anticipate quite a bit of, um, you know, there's a lot of employment, a lot of Kaiser, there's a lot of commercial buildings there, so they wanted to provide for that for the walk-up, so they've allowed a the, uh, nice outside patio. I'm not certain exactly how many sheets are on. Um, so the, the reason I asked that the, the parking uh, calculated 15 parking required is three seats per parking, and so they provide 15. That means the total seats could not be more than 45. Is that correct? The table is on page 14 of the report. Uh, yes, to get that, the PUD um, required, uh, sets the parking requirements for uh, coffee shops and it is one per three seats. So we sort of did the math backwards and um, came upon that they would probably be at a maximum of 45 seats to accommodate 15 parking spaces. However, um, with the retail building, they're only required to have 14 and they are providing 20. So there is um, some remaining parking spaces over there to accommodate a couple extra seats. So the 45 seats, that, is that only interior? The uh, seats in the patio doesn't count? It doesn't specify, so it's total. It's total. Uh, yeah. Okay. Um, 
So then, in theory, if they provide 15, you're saying that there's additional parking from the uh, from the retail, so that counts at the Starbucks parking. Um, so then, in theory, they can have more seats indoor and outdoor to satisfy. Yes. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Thank you, Commissioner Wong Conley. Any other commissioner comments, questions? Seeing none. Thank you, sir. We'll, we'll go to public comment. Any public comment on this item? Seeing none. We'll go to commissioner motions, comments, questions. Commissioner Pluckybaum. This site's been troubled for a long time. I just want to thank the applicant for bringing this project forward. It'll be a, a big improvement to the community. And I would encourage you to consider staying open past 11 to capture businesses as they come out of Cal Expo. I think a cup of coffee would do a lot of those people a lot of good. Uh, so I'll move staff recommendation. Second. Thank you, Commissioner Pluckybaum. We have a motion from Com Commissioner Pluckybaum, a second from Commissioner Farrell. Uh, um, Coville. Coville. <laughs> <laughs> I need a cup of coffee right now. If Starbucks is only here, you know. We'll go with the roll call. Commissioner Lopaso? Aye. Coville? Aye. Lindsay? Aye. Farrell? Aye. Lucky Bomb? Aye. Juan Connolly? Aye. Yee? Aye. Vice Chair Lucian? Aye. Chair Burke? Aye. Motion passes. Congratulations. Our next item is item number six, an ordinance amending section 15.156.020 and various provisions of Title 17 of the Sacramento City Code relating to planning development. Uh, Ms. Hope and all yours. Good evening, Chair Burke, members of the Commission. I am Sondra Yope, Senior Planner from Current Planning. The item before you consists of multiple amendments to Title 17, the Planning and Development Code. The proposed amendments include council-directed changes, application and process changes, as well as administrative changes to clarify or clean up areas of the code. The City Council directed staff to make several zoning code changes. They include allowing indoor amusement center by right and add omitted conditional uses in the employment center zone. Remove the minimum width and depth requirements for dwelling units. Add parking space maximum requirements in the central business district. Create an estate lot definition for large parcels with landmark structure within the central city requiring a minimum lot size. And delink time extensions from associated entitlement extensions which will require individual entitlements to be extended as opposed to the entitlements being extended any time the map is extended. Staff is also recommending other changes to the Planning Development Code. Many of the amendments made by the code eliminate confusing code, correct text errors, or correct unintended implementation consequences from the adoption in 2013. Other changes simplify the development process or reduce requirements for development. Some of the more significant changes include allowing the design director to approve all site plan and design review deviations for one and two dwelling units, parking requirements, design-related standards, landscaping and paving requirements, and lot size dimensions related to parcel maps. Changing the height trigger for an automatic planning and design commission project review 
to those that correspond to the maximum heights of the zone they're in. And removing the requirement that all new construction in a historic district or a, on a parcel with a landmark structure requires or automatically requires a director level site plan and design review. Accordingly, these reviews will be reviewed by staff unless elevated by the director. And removing the maximum front yard setback limitation in many of the commercial zones. These are some of the more notable of the proposed changes. I'm happy to explain any of the proposed changes and staff recommends the commission recommend approval and forward to the city council. Do you have any questions? Thank you. Uh, Commissioner Colville? Yeah, on, on page four, the remove garage side requirements, parking pad is provided. I looked up the section, it, it still was odd to me. Are, are you saying that if they give a, a required pad, that the, the size of a garage will have no requirements, that it might not even be able to have a car park in it? Uh, that is correct. The idea is that you're only, you're required to have, once you have a garage, um, particularly in the uh, one, one and two family. What we see is the interior dimensions. Lots of times people have a 10 by 20, but it's like measured from the exterior walls. They don't have the interior size 10 by 20. So we end up deviating from that. And since if you can have a parking pad that meets the requirement where you can park a car, which is um, therefore we're removing that requirement that you, may, that you have that size. So then it could have a garage, but it might not fit a car. It would, just is, be, it would just be for storage. That is possible. And then um, just to make sure I understand, uh, removal of the requirement of site plan and design review for a tentative map and parcels that meet all development standards if no new construction is proposed. Normally that would come to this body, right? Uh, not necessarily. Normally it would go, it would have a site plan and design review entitlement along with, as we do right now, a tentative map. So if the zoning administrator is hearing the map, we're reviewing the map and we're also reviewing the sizes of the lots now separately with the code change. It used to always be done as part of the map review. Then when we added site plan design review, the language that went in there made it so you had to have that entitlement as well to review when you subdivide property. So what we're saying is if there's no in order, and so we've ended up with a lot of things that get appealed all the way to council because they can, because a map can be appealed all the way to council um, based on not the map really, based on other, based on the um, other, other parts of it using the site plan and design review. And, and so anyway, we are at this point just trying, if it's a straight map, they meet all the standards, they meet the lot sizes, they meet the dimension, lot dimensions, the, uh, even if there's structures on it, if they meet all the setbacks, there's no deviation from any standard require that we no longer require the site plan and design review entitlement that's just reviewed under the map. If there's any kind of deviation, then you're back to needing that entitlement with a deviation going to whatever level is appropriate for your project. Very good, thank you. That's all my questions for now. Thank you, Commissioner Colville. Commissioner, Commissioner Wong Conley. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chair. I have a few uh, questions. One is on uh, page four of the um, 131-page uh, report. It says, um, uh, change the height trigger for automatic plan planning and designing commission project review 
to those above the maximum allowed height in the zone. Um, so before there was a, a certain height, 65 feet or 75, 70 feet goes to the commissioner automatically. So now there's a, a maximum, um, about maximum will come to the commission. That's the intent, right? Um, I remember last meeting for the downtown specific plan, there is a, a proposal that for any height increase by 20, more than 20, uh, the height can increase by 20% if they provide a community benefit. So this will not be evaluated by this commission, will be evaluated by the uh, director for the community benefit? Uh, no, this particular change, I'm not familiar with what you're, I don't know if you are, what you're speaking. This change, basically what this does is if you're in, and let me give you an example, if you're in an industrial zone, and I, I always like to use this example for when the code changed. If you're in an industrial zone, the height limit is 75 feet. The day before the, the code went into effect in 2013, we had an applicant come to the counter who's out in the industrial who has silos. They're all 75 feet tall. He came in and added a new silo. At that point, he met all the setbacks. He just went straight and got a building permit. When this code went into effect, what he did, which was just by right, went through, got his building permit, then put him going to Planning and Design Commission to put in that exact same silo because the trigger is 60 feet. So and the height for the zone is or six, 65, 60. Height for the zone is the allowed, by, the allowed height in the zone is 75 feet. So what we're trying to do is if... If you're in an industrial zone and your project is not exceeding that height limit, then you don't automatically have to come to this commission. If you're in the zones where I think the other, where it's a 65 height limit, you don't have to come to commission if you're meeting the height limit because the threshold was 60 feet. It was arbitrarily to some degree set at that, but it didn't take into account that some of the zones have a higher height limit. This does not affect anything about the part that you're talking about. It's just you either meet the height or you don't. It doesn't allow you to have extra heights. It's just you're meeting the height of the zone. Uh, so then if the proposal I talk about went through, uh, goes through, then uh, who will evaluate the maximum 20% of increase if they provide community benefit? Is it the director or the commission? That's my question. And, and I am not familiar with the part you're talking about. Uh, it, okay. You, Uh, nothing that we're proposing here would change the threshold for a, for a deviation to the height. So if you're proposing to go taller than what your zone allows, then a deviation of less than 50% would go to the director and of more than 50% would come to the commission. So we wouldn't be changing anything about that process and the 125,000 square foot trigger for commercial development would still be in right. place. This would only affect, uh, allow um, up to uh, the height in the zone to be uh, reviewed. Uh, it wouldn't be an automatic trigger to come to commission. Um, are you, do you, do you know the uh, proposal that I referenced that uh, uh, from last meeting is um, they can uh, increase by 20% the plate height if they provide a community benefit, that's part of the proposal of a downtown specific plan um, package. And I wonder how does that relate to what we are changing here? I think it's one of the proposed amendments that they're taking forward eventually. This will go for, this will be done first. 
for the downtown but i don't think this change doesn't affect that or doesn't give someone the authority the, uh, the ability to do the 20 percent or or rule on if there's a community benefit i'm not even, i'm not that familiar with that but i know that's part of that whole package that is still has a ways to go i believe before they go but i don't know if jeff do you have any Chair, with your indulgence, I think uh, the commissioner is, it sounds like you're referring to the general plan policy that allows an exceedance of the FAR limitations if a significant community benefit is provided. Uh, I know staff has talked about uh, making some changes to that. You were talking about it in context of the downtown specific plan. Uh, that, would have, that would require an amendment to the general plan itself if uh, some sort of cap like that would be put in. You can't do it by this. You can't amend the general plan by the specific plan. So that particular policy that's in the general plan itself would have to be amended to put a cap on it. And doing that uh, doesn't affect the level of decision maker that you're asking about, I think. Uh, whoever the project decision maker is based on the, the underlying code provisions for a project makes those sort of general plan consistency determinations, including one that would have to do with the exceedance of the FAR. Understand now. Okay, thank you. And then... Uh, on page four, the de uh, de design director to approve the all-site deviation for one or two dwelling units. Um, well, there are a few cases that we do hear the de deviation uh, in this commission, and then we hear the testimony from the neighbors and, uh, and ultimately making the decision. So, and it doesn't happen very often. So I wonder what's the reason to give uh, uh, to take this away from the commission and then leave uh, all the decision making to the uh, to the design director, uh, is that to lighten the workload of the commission? Uh, one, it's to streamline. Once again, in the other code, we have provisions that allow when you're only dealing with one or two family, not all the rest, um, and they want to do an addition to their house and they want it and it takes them to so they reduce a setback down to zero. This, where we see the most of these is not in the central city, it's in outlying areas of the cities where we get this. But it affects people and what they can do in terms of uh, their design. You'll tell them if you want to uh, do a room addition and it's gonna, you're gonna end up being five feet from the rear setback, then you must go to commission because uh, you're more than 50% of that requirement to add on we used to have ways to do that and keep it at a lower hearing level there's still a public hearing it still can be appealed to this body um, but it's to basically lessen the burden on really on homeowners on the one and two family type development as they go forward so that same if we deal with bulk, bulk control some of the bulk control if they're just barely over what 50 percent then they're automatically having to come here and adds a great deal of cost and time to come to this to come to this body and like I said we previously had entitlements that let you do that that didn't automatically send someone to the Commission okay all right thank you and then um, on page 16 multifamily dwelling uh, when it's uh, adjacent to the R1 or R1B zone the interior setback is reduced from uh, five feet to three feet I mean, uh, three feet is really not that much, especially when you have a high, uh, when you have a multifamily dwelling adjacent to a single-family home. So I wonder what is uh, uh, the trigger for this reduction? 
I think it's to make it consistent with the other, with other zones that uh, require only a three-foot setback, and I think it's to clarify it. Um, I recall part of this was if you have someone that comes in and does small, like small lots with houses, but say they don't actually build it now. Now you're in a situation where that person, if someone else comes in and builds, they have to would have to have a five-foot setback on a lot that probably you're going to have to do a deviation anyway. So it's to clarify, it's basically to clarify a practice we already do. Like, for instance, in the R3A, if you have um, the de detached single-family homes, um, like almost looks like townhome development, but it's not. It's because there's multiple, they reduce that to require no setback. But if you were next door, the other side, if you had a single-family home, you would still have your um, your requirement uh, of a, a larger setback, and this just makes it uh, more consistent. And I don't have my code to pull it out of. Uh, I guess I'm not uh, following you more consistent with what? It's page. Um, no, I, I have the I have the section. Uh, I believe it's from the. What I don't have is. Have the code up over there. It's seventeen point two zero eight point four four zero. It's specifically talk, talking about multifamily dwelling. Um, I think it's in the R3. It's just to clarify what we do. That's, let me. What I'm trying to check is. Um, what I want to look up and see, I think we're referring to the R3A zone to, to clarify it. To clarify what we have done routinely is to make it clear for that interior, primarily that interior setback, when you do the smaller lots, you build one and the other, it's to make it uh, so that you, you no longer have that five-foot requirement with something that's not going to fit when they have done the smaller lots. It's not necessarily the exterior, but I need to see. I have a few other questions. You can get back to me on this one if uh, that will be helpful. Yes. Um, so on page 22, 29, 30, and 33, talk about for the office business zone, shopping center, C1, C4 zone, the maximum street side setback uh, used to be require maximum 25 feet. You cannot uh, build anything uh, further away from that is to activate the street, right? That's what I understand. So now the requirement has been uh, removed. What's the reason to remove the requirement when you want to activate the street? The, when this was put in, it, you're right. Well, it was more to bring buildings closer to the street. That's what they wanted to do. The reality is, is every development that comes in here requests 
to have their parking up front and the building is further back and that dimension doesn't uh, work and they end up coming here to this commission for the deviation for that setback and every single time it's been approved. So part of what we change is when routinely we have to, we go forward with the exact same deviation over and over and over and over it is approved is to, is to, to change the code to remove that out of, out of the process. Let me ask you this question. Is that a good planning principle to allow buildings to have parking uh, in front of a building uh, right in front of the street, between the street and the building, to have parking lot right there? Um, I, I know ideally that they wanted it to be different than that. Practically, that's not what has happened for the last four years for sure and as, as we go forward. And the other part of this, and that came, this came before this commission not that long ago, was the Compton's Market in East Sac, where they wanted to expand their building along their existing building line. They weren't encroaching any further or back in the setback, but because the parking was in the front and they were going along the existing building line, they were more than 50% of the 25, so they were more than 37 and a half feet back. Therefore, in order to do a simple expansion along the existing building line or a setback line, they had to come to this commission for approval, for a deviation for that expansion. That's a unique example, but I thought that the planning, uh, the code is we held to a higher standard and hopefully that we can um, get what we, what we require, but now we are relaxing the standards so we don't have to uh, ask for deviation. But then what the consequences is uh, in heavy commercial C4 zone, then we're allowing them to put a parking lot right in front of the, right ad adjacent to the sidewalk, then essentially that's what we are asking. So um, uh, I, I heard your comments, so I want to uh, continue. One question is on the C4 zone. Now, um, heavy commercial, now it seems like uh, there is a warehouse and then distribution center is allowed by right without a limitation for the heavy commercial zone um, based on the page 33 of the report. So what is the reason that now we allow the warehouse in the C4 zone? What, what page? Page 33 of the report. The first line, warehouse distribution center. I believe it was, uh, I don't even have. I think it's over there.
Yeah, it's, uh, C4 is heavy commercial, and I th believe the reason we have it there is it was inadvertently left off when they did the, they revised the code in 2013. A lot of these changes go back to things that were errors from that adoption. It's just unfortunately taken us this long to get back. But it was previously on. It was not meant to come off of this zone because heavy commercial is it's just that. It's heavy commercial. It's not like other commercial zones. When you say it was original on, but do we... Uh is that a good, good practice to allow a warehouse in the a C4 zone? We Even have warehouse in the C4 zone currently, and it used to be allowed, and it was, that's what I'm saying, when the new code was adopted, it was inadvertently left out of that permitted land use chart, and we are just simply correcting what was omitted by error. Uh, without uh, the size limitation, because there's a manufacturer uh, allowed in C4 zone, but it has to be no more than 64 uh, hundred square feet. And in, if it's in, more a, in a general commercial, a C2 zone, that is the case, not in C4 or M1 or M2. Would you uh, double check, please? Because uh, when I checked, it seemed like it was C4 C4 zone for manufacturer. Okay. Um, we'll look. I could I could be wrong, but please double check and get back to me. Thank you on that. And then. On page 43, there is a talking about a minimum 10. I stand corrected. It is, I guess, manufacturing is listed to six, restricted 6400 in the C4. So does that make sense to put the same limitation for the warehouse then? Uh, we can. We can make that recommendation. Um, I want to hear if it's a good idea. Um, if you can come, you or, or Mr. Patterson can comment on. Yeah, if you want to, if you want to recommend that for us, then we can take that forward. Okay, uh, I will. Add that. Um, and then on page forty-three, talk about minimum ten feet wide landscape setback is removed from the uh, central city. So um, what is the landscape setback? How is this different from the uh, pedestrian zone? The main reason this was removed is for the central city is many of these where they go, they're going in existing buildings. It's not there now. So otherwise they would uh, physically, um, they would have to deviate because there's no way to do it because the built buildings are there. That's been uh, the practice. It's not... We've not seen new buildings, new mini storage in Central City. They go in existing. It's for the, essentially, they don't meet that requirement now. So if there are new parcels that are in the uh, Central City that they could uh, meet this requirement, well, in my mind, this is a significant part of the walkability, is you have a um, nice planter area and then for the pedestrian, and then you have the space for side, uh, side cafe. So now we remove the standard for all, then um, it's the go back to the same thing. Look like, uh, well, since we are not going to meet the requirement, then we might as well just lower the requirement so that's not enforced at all. As I said, this came from Central City team requesting because it practically, it doesn't, it, it doesn't exist now because they go in existing buildings. There's not the vacant space to build these with this that would have this requirement. 
If, if I might, um, I'll look back, but mini storage may be one of the uses that is proposed to be prohibited with the downtown specific plan, so it wouldn't really be uh, detrimental here, but I'll confirm with the draft, um, online with the draft to, and report back to you. Is this only for mini storage? Yes. This is specifically to mini storage. That's the only thing because in those requirements for there, they have to have a 10-foot landscape setback. It is still required everywhere else in the city. It was just central city. Okay, sorry. I misunderstood. I thought it's uh, removed no. for the entire central cities. Um, okay, thank you. And then for the um, transit overlay zone, uh, they used to be requirement for non-residential uh, floor area ratio, minimum, maximum. So now the requirement is removed um, for the, all the transit overlay zone. So what's the reason that we're not required those anymore? Because it would defer to the general plan requirements. Actually, our um, transit overlay zone is kind of older, and the general plan is more um, permissive with uh, FAR. So we, we want the general plan, we want to allow uh, higher FAR in the transit overlay, and it kind of caps it. It was progressive at the time, but it's, it's not anymore as the general plan has evolved to allow more density. I see. So when the code is silenced, then it uh, default, uh, default to the general plan, yes. which has the specific yes. requirement. Thank you. That's a good explanation. And then um, um, one question. Oh, last question. So at a new construction, on-site of an existing landmark contributing resource or non-contributing resource or uh, on a vacant site in a historic district. So now it's a staff level review. Um, I read the report from the Pre Preservation Committee and their, their recommendation is if you, if I understand correctly, is if you want to go with this direction, then you ought to give the staff specific guideline about uh, how to evaluate the infill project in the existing historic district. And there, um, the documents, they proposed the interim principle for the protection of the historic districts and the landmarks with respect to infill development within the central city. Um, uh, and that is a draft document that is not, it's, it's just that it's a draft document. It's not an ordinance, it's not something that applies for us at at this time? But I think this is a, a big step forward to provide a framework for the infill projects in the historic district, their documents. So what's the process to adopt it at the same time? Or um, it's not, it's, they're just now started working on this. It'll come eventually, but they've just started on that process. So I don't know, I, I mean, I don't know, I don't know when it's coming, but it is, it is a ways back in the terms of how, you know, bringing an ordinance forward to the, to the commission, to council. Okay, thank you. And that's all my question for now. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Thank you, Commissioner Wong Conley. I'll ask the staff to, to do some more research on those questions if needed. But I want to go out of order. Just I see it's starting to get late. I want to go to public comment now. Um, and I want to go to Jackie Whitelamb. Um, hopefully I pronounced that right. can't read the writing. Um, and first of all, I just want to thank you as your service on the Preservation Commission. Thank you um, to your service sure. to the city. Okay, well, um, I crafted a written statement in case I needed to keep to a two-minute, so I'd kind of like to say that first. But I'd be happy to 
explain uh, just what the Commission has been doing with regard to the infill, um, uh, interim infill development after I read the statement, because I want this to be in the record. Um, good evening. I serve on the Preservation Commission's Infill Development Ad Hoc Committee that was established by the Commission in February of this year. And I'm here tonight to read into the record our request for two amendments to be removed from the proposed ordinance. First, because these particular amendments are changes to authority and the public review process. Generally, this staff item has been portrayed as cleanup language. This is not cleanup. If you want to streamline, you should notice that and make people understand they're having a change in authority and the public review process. And second, because it's premature for these amendments to be made pending the upcoming public hearings on the downtown specific plan, which I understand will come to you in November or December and the council in January. And until the city finalizes and enacts the interim infill development principles adopted by the Preservation Commission in September, uh, that were specifically structured to provide guidance to staff on infill development within historic districts and on parcels containing a landmark structure. The proposed amendment to Section 17808140 removes the requirement that all new construction in a historic district or on a parcel with a landmark structure require director level site plan and design review. Should such review be delegated to staff, adjacent property owners would not be notified of proposed projects and would not have their concerns considered in a public forum. Staff decisions are not appealable and may only be reconsidered if someone happens to hear of the approval and files such a request within seven days after the staff member has made their decision. What is more, planning currently has no staff other than the preservation director with the requisite specialized knowledge and experience in historic preservation. The proposed amendment to section 17808, I'm going to go over, I apologize, 808120 would allow the director to approve all site plan and design deviations for one and two unit dwellings and to make any deviations relative to lot size or dimensions on a parcel map. Allowing the director to approve such deviations may sound inconsequential, but as 2218 Capitol Avenue demonstrated, it's not the number of units, but the scale, the height, and the massing of new structures that impacts the integrity of historic districts. We've provided more information to you in a memorandum. We've also attached the interim infill development principles that are not just starting we started this process in March. We reviewed all the past documents as volunteers, three members on the, because the staff couldn't do it. They didn't have the time, and I understand they're, over, you know, they're overloaded. We reviewed all past documents. We gleaned out of them so you could get it into a simple document that until you get the, uh, the allocation of time and the financial resources to draft the historic district plans, which the existing title, you know, 17 says should be done, that you would at least have interim infill um, development um, guidelines in place that could be used so that you don't have the confusion 
and the waste of time and money of developers, the fear and distrust of neighbors in historic districts when individual projects come through. And we went through, drafted it. We worked with the preservation director and the urban design manager in coming up with them. We held three public hearings in June, July, and September, in which case we took in public comment from, the, you know, from Central City residents. They've been revised. We have been, in, we have been told by the urban design manager that the next step is we just put it in an ordinance and at our next meeting in November, they're to tell us what that schedule is. The indication to us from the changes that the urban design manager made to it was that he was basically wanted us to craft something that he felt would be pretty much where you're ultimately going to get. And he did some tremendous work on tailoring how you have, um, how you deal with particularly the alleys um, so that you can make the variations within historic districts. So there would be something that people uniformly would have some idea before they started down the road of either buying a piece of property. I mean, it is, you know, if you have people now buying property with confused ideas as to what they can do with that property, that helps no one. And so it is frankly was perplexing to the Preservation Commission last week when this ordinance, which had been portrayed to us as simply cleanup language, had this dropped on it. And it's also perplexing to me that in the public record at this meeting on the videotape that the staff member did not even reference the Preservation Commission's concerns and that in their staff report they didn't give the reasons for why we were doing that. We are not obstructionists. We are not NIMBYs. We believe that you can accommodate infill development and you can preserve the asset that the city of Sacramento has in its historic districts. All of these issues are going to be discussed, hopefully, in the public hearing of the downtown specific plan, which people, even though it's not named correctly, they at least have some sense that something's coming up. The way this was listed on the agenda, you know, I'm the only one here. You know, do you think that if people had a clear idea that they were having changes in level of authority and changes in public review process, that there wouldn't be more people here? And it seems to me that the overriding policy is that things need to be done for streamlining because now we also all need to have affordable housing done. I spent 35 years of my life building affordable housing in the central city. Can we get your final thoughts, please? I will be in the central city. This is not the way to do it. You need to engage the people who are already here. You You don't need to do actions like this that after six to seven months of getting people now talking to each other and feeling positive at the September meeting, this is basically an undercut. So... I've made my statement for the public record. Wherever this goes, I will continue to make my public statement for the public record. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, back to Commissioner questions. I, I want to go to Commissioner LaFossil's questions next. Uh, thank you very much, Mr. Chair, and thank you for uh, extending the extra time to Commissioner Whitelum. I'm going to go to those issues a little bit, but I have a couple more minor questions for staff. 
the estate lot uh, provision, do I understand correctly that by stating a minimum size, what that's really about is preventing lot splits for estate lots because they would go under the minimum size? Correct. Thanks. Um, I, I want to thank Commissioner Wong Connolly for reviewing a number of the setback rules. The one that I took notice was the um, the reduction or elimination of the front setback for commercial zones. And I reread it during the discussion, and I reminded myself that it's all commercial zones and it's not limited to the central city. But um, apropos to Commissioner Whitelam's testimony, there's a lot of intersecting things going on between the downtown specific plan and this. Here's where I'm going. Um, there's a lot of infill development in the central city on parcels that are zone C2. And when one drills down on those as a parcel by parcel level, one realizes that those parcels have rules that are attached to them that are based on commercial zone thinking, but are applied to residential zone development. Um, Am I correct that um, any of these rules we're eliminating on, say, C2 zone parcels in the central city, they will apply to uh, developing residential properties on those C2 parcels? Yes, but I'm, I'm not, I guess I don't understand your question. We're not eliminating a, any... Um required minimum setbacks. The only one we're eliminating is the required maximum setback on the commercial zones. So, yes, it would it'll apply everywhere, but I'm so I'm not telling me it's not relevant in context. Well, I I guess I'm not understanding remind me what the, remind me what the rule is, please. Well, right now, and this is existing, and we're not touching it, in a C2 zone, there is no minimum front yard setback required. There is a maximum of 25 feet. That's what we are getting rid of, is the maximum. We're not touching what's there now, which is there isn't one. And this is the rule you were discussing where you cited the Comptons as an example? Yes. Okay. Which, which incidentally, is an existing development, and I won't get into that. I'll get that later. Switching gears a little bit. The... Um, the, uh, there were two jurisdiction. There are two uh, jurisdictional changes that Commissioner Whitelam referenced, and the one related to moving down the level of review from direct le lever to staff level. I think that's the one that's uh, contributing resource or historic district eighteen six zero four seven fifty. Sorry, it's on page one eleven. I had to look it up. Um, is that's the one where we're going from director level to staff level? Yes. I, not, I don't know if you're – I have to look to see if it's the, your, the code reference is correct, but yes, that's uh, for uh, new construction on uh, properties in the historic, zone, historic district or that have a landmark. So what this also includes is, for instance, if someone wants to build a garage, they don't have to go to a director level hearing. What, as, as I explained uh, at the Preservation Commission, and Lewis is here, unfortunately Bruce cannot be here because he is really the one to address it, um, but uh, every single project that, that does come in is reviewed by, um, well, all of the seniors, but particularly uh, Carson, our Preservation Director, 
who reviews what the project is and what where uh, you know what's appropriately to be done with it. So that's why we say that they always have the ability to elevate it to a director level hear hearing. I appreciate but, you're you're going way f far afield of where my question is going. Oh, okay. Um, Sorry. When you move <laughs> from director level to staff level review, right. does it cease to be a discretionary entitlement? I've always understood that staff level review it's still is still discretionary. It's still discretionary. Yes. Um, somehow, I've never quite unpacked the bundle. I've always assumed that a discretionary entitlement involves a public hearing, which involves some degree of notice. So it's discretionary, but without public hearing and without notice. Is that the difference? For, forgetting all of the cost issues we talked about. At staff level is discretionary. Um, it basically can be denied. It can be conditioned. Um, it can be, you know, directed to be changed. The action then is subject to reconsideration, which is anyone can essentially say they don't like the decision or they don't like conditions and ask that the decision be re-looked at. And then it's re-looked at. But there is no official appeal. I'm not sure I, know, I just I not I'm not sure I understood what you meant so I'm going to rephrase a question so generally speaking absent the subdivision map example you mentioned earlier um, uh, matters are appealed up one level unless council creates a special rule like for say cannabis cultivation not relevant so if if uh, if it's direct director level level review it's appealable to the applicable commission but if it's staff level review it's not an appeal, but it's kind of like an appeal. How, does it, how, does it, how do appeals work? It's basically appealed to a director level review. To, I mean, it's, it's not appealed, but it's subject to director level review, but it is not a public hearing. So if I'm a neighbor and the circumstances we've talked about occurs and uh, there's uh, staff level approval as contemplated in the provision, and I'm not too keen on it, what are my rights? You would submit a request for reconsideration to the uh, appropriate director who heard it. I mean, this, typically, these are either design director or preservation director. How am I going to know about it? What's my time limit? Because you know how things work. The approval gets done, a bunch of other stuff happens, new drawings get done, the building permits get pulled, the porty potty shows up on the next lot, the bulldozer comes, the foundation's poured, the neighbor walks over and says, hey, what's going on? And, you know, not forgetting the fact that, you know, cement's in the ground, you know, usually these kinds of appeals have time limitations. And, I mean, as a, seriously, as a practical matter, if there was no notice and I didn't know what was happening, how can I appeal? I don't know about it in time. There is a, the, the time limit to answer that part is seven days. It's a seven-day reconsideration period. It is post every approval is posted on the on the website um, with the new. They have the new the new uh, tracking tool tracking tool as well that you can see what's going on, what's in, what's going on in your area as well. But no, there is no actual notice to neighbors. Okay, not even the little blue sign. Correct. Okay. Um, so moving right along, on this question of the, um, uh, uh, the standards that the ad hoc committee at the Preservation Commission is working on, and, and all due deference to Mr. Monaghan not being here, I did ask him some questions about it when we did do the 2218 capital appeal, and, you know, it was not as ripe as it is now. 
What I'm trying to get at is, I'm going to ask my question in as bold a form as I can, and then I'll press. Is this on a staff work plan? Is this actually going to go forward? Is staff going to take up the recommendations of the Preservation Commission ad hoc? Commissioner Whitelem made reference to an anticipated report back to the Preservation Commission in November that seemed to indicate that that's when uh, Preservation Commission thought they'd they'd learn more about the specifics of the path forward, and if it's on staff's you know work list, I don't know the right words to accept. Um, I know it's going forward. Um, Bruce had told me that tonight. Yes, it is moving forward. I don't know more beyond that. It's um, it's not it's not unfortunately it's not my area, so I don't know. I don't know. Do you know? Yeah. Okay. But I do know it's going forward. He is, was very specific about that. They're moving forward. It's just, it's behind us. Okay. A ways. Is staff at liberty to, to comment on whether the, the, the um, uh, I'm sure Commissioner Whitelam knows that Preservation Commission Chair Marshak you know, put that memo together, and um, we didn't have to do disclosures here because it's a quasi-legislative item, but I've talked to Preservation Commissioner Chair Marshak a couple of times, and I've seen presentations on this. And the bottom line is there's a number of, you know, pretty firm setback rules in their proposal and a couple discrete uh, indicators that that would be required to be examined in an historic district. I kind of am under the impression that from a staff recommendation standpoint, staff hasn't entirely bought into all of those specifics. And staff may have its own perspective on one or more details. Can, can you comment on that? I, I can't speak to that. I actually don't know anything about it other than what I you know, read in the letter that was submitted to us to send to you all. So I'm not working on it. I, I know it's going on. Typically, the way it works for staff when is once it's adopted, Everyone gets brief and told what's going on. There may be mention of it. There may be some discussion. But if you're not actively involved in it, you may know bits and pieces. And and so I, I can't speak to any part of, of that process. Okay. I mean the ad hoc and what's going forward. Appreciate it. Um, two more questions, uh, Mr. Sanchez. Do you want to elaborate on the substance of what the ad hoc committee is looking at from a design manager standpoint? Sorry for my lib use of titles. Good evening, commissioners. Um, I'm sorry, while well, all of us are little, don't have all the information, Carson couldn't be here, Bruce couldn't be here. I do know that we do support what's moving forward. We understand that. It is a little behind the timeline on this. We do support it. There may be some fine points that are still being discussed. That I don't know, like Sandra, we don't know the details. Um, Carson would have known that, and I apologize he couldn't be here. But um, so... That's kind of where we are right now. It, it's moving forward. There may be a few points that are still being discussed. Okay, appreciate it. And um, I also address the uh, the sure. um, staff level design yeah. director, just so you know. We've been doing that in design review for a long time, since the 2013 and even before that. So we do that currently where it was changed, where it's all staff level for single family homes, one and two family. It's worked pretty good. I'd say of a, you know out of 100, maybe five, there's concerns with neighbors like what happened here? They particularly didn't like the massing or material, but typically it's pretty good. And we're not getting reconsideration, but we do at times have a call. Uh, people that know to look for the projects are looking and they're tracking projects and they'll call and say, 
this looks like it was approved. I don't quite, can I see the conditions? And if they don't like it, they will submit a reconsideration. So that's happened uh, in one year, maybe two reconsiderations. And those are reviewed by the director and say, staff, so what did you do? We explain what we've done. He or she can agree with what we've done. Sometimes they'll do a minor tweak. A person will say, I wish that window had been frosted because it's going to look straight in my yard. Director will say, staff, modify that condition. So that's worked pretty well so far for design review. Appreciate I think that. that's the rationale for trying to adopt similar process. Just for context, um, and, I'm, and, I, and I understand generally speaking that as the scope of design review was expanded in the city, we mitigated the impact of that by keeping the level of review pretty contained. Yes. And understanding generally speaking what uh, site plan and design review covers when it's not linked to any other entitlement, do I understand correctly that the proposal we're talking about here where we're talking about a similar process where potentially I, I forgot what what entitlements might be granted on the parcel with the landmark or the undeveloped parcel in the historic district, say, you know, bulk control deviations, setback deviations. I mean, are we are do I understand correctly that while you've articulated a process that works in a distinct context, we're we're proposing to expand that the context of that process to say the kind of deviations I made reference to. Just to clarify, and I know Sandra wants to say the same. If there's deviation, it goes to the appropriate bodies. This is, there's, there's no deviation. Right now, the garage in the back, that requires full, because it's new construction, it could meet every code, it still requires a director hearing. We're trying to avoid that. But if there's deviations needed, height, setback, that would trigger the next level of review. So, so am I correct that we're not talking about any additional entitlements? Okay. And, and I'm reminding as I'm thinking that I think the issue here is That's correct. the sensitivity to design in historic districts. And I do have one example in my neighborhood of a, uh, a historic design issue that was a great objection to the neighborhood. And there was some deep probing by some neighbors and in the Orwellian world we live in where the government never admits error, it was rooted out that there was an inexperienced staff who approved something that had more rigor with regard to the Department of Interior Standards of what it is had been imposed that it would not have been allowed, but the world we work in, you know, is such that once the approval is granted, it's granted and it can't be given up. Um, I, I, that, that's a long-winded preface to a conversation, but... But do you have any examples along the lines you made reference to, Mr. Sanchez, of this uh, context in historic districts? Because you sort of linked design review generally to design review in historic districts. Well, I, I, I wasn't trying to correlate the two. I was just saying the process has worked in design review. So the idea was perhaps if there's no other entitlement needed, no deviation, that especially these garages or a little addition on the back, it's new construction. It's triggering something that could be handled by staff. I also agree there should be appropriate criteria, you know, design guidelines or preservation guidelines in the, in the case of preservation. So with those go in concert with this process of trying to streamline when we need to, but if there's a deviation, it goes to the next level. Appreciate that. Um, I'm going to move to the next issue. One minor issue that was in the Preservation Commission materials and it was in the staff report, uh, I think that it had to do with... Um, 
a bolt control issue where there's a different plane or different material where it intersects with the issue of um, of using different materials when the side of the building isn't historic. But it seemed to intersect with a bulk control issue that was in an actual ordinance provision. Preservation Commission seemed to have an issue with it. And um, are, you, are you following what I'm talking about? And I know it's, it has to do with the requirement of two different materials on the, on the side, and the concern was with historic um, structures that, oh, you want to match them, but essentially, according, at least, and you maybe won't speak to it, what Bruce had basically said is the Secretary of Interior Standards says not to match it. So it's not in conflict the way it's written, basically. I don't know if Lewis can elaborate more. That's, it's a little beyond my okay. part, but. It, it's, not a, it's not a bulk issue. It's a, it's a materials issue. Right. It, it's, a, it's a bulk issue elsewhere, but in, for in, in, their concern was in the historic district about the, the requirement about the uh, two different t material types. Okay. Appreciate that. Um, Mr. Chairman, are, is, the, is the public comment period of the uh, hearing completed? Yes, sir. I believe there's no public comment. Yes, okay. Yes, sir. I asked the question because um, then a motion would be in order, I gather. Um, I'm going to move the staff recommendation with the two amendments that Commissioner Whitelam uh, asked for. Um, two, two basic comments. Um, without invoking all of the commentary about streamlining, this, there's a lot going on here. And notwithstanding a lot of the commentary, I think there's a lot of good streamlining that I actually agree with, notwithstanding some probative and quite intelligent commentary. Um, since all of these matters do kind of intersect with all of the you know, intersecting things. And since staff pretty much said there's a track for the issues that the Preservation Commission is commenting on in historic districts, um, I think there's a clear nexus to their request. My last comment is I, I really want to underscore for my colleagues. When I hear mid-central city residents get their head around what's going on with the downtown specific plan and they are still very confused about it as evidenced by what occurred at our last commission meeting. The one thing everybody zeroes in on is they're not gonna mess around with the historic districts, are they? And the last conversation I had in that regard, I said no and I realize you know, there's nuances you know, to the levels of these things. Um, finally, and I said this when we approved Yamini, when our colleagues get anxious about things that we're doing to accelerate um, uh, development in the central city, it's not really in the thorough design of how our rules work, but it's a practical reality that the historic districts are what protect the areas that central city neighbors are most worried about having more intense development. Notwithstanding all the other rules we got, the historic districts are the best synthesis of the pro-growth, the long corridor issues that we're trying to achieve in the central city, excuse me, the downtown specific plan, and the issues that most of the vocal neighbors in the central city have concerned about. So my final plea for my motion is don't, under, don't underestimate the significance of historic districts in the overall makeup of the regulatory framework for the central city. Thank you. 
Thank you, Commissioner LaFasso. Um, we do have a motion from you. Do I hear a second from any other commissioners? Second from Vice Chair Lucian. Um, I will take question or comments from Commissioner Colville next. I just want to make sure I understand what we're talking about. He drilled down very well. I learned a lot from that, uh, Commissioner LaFazzo. But when we say we're moving forward, we're moving forward with this the way it's written unless we change it. That's what you're talking about, isn't it? Yes. I mean, as far as your recommendation is to, to move forward the amendments to city council. Wasn't you're moving forward with, with uh, uh, preservation commission's recommendations you weren't moving i mean forward. you can direct us to you, you i guess can i was just us. trying to figure out what yeah. you meant by no you we're moving forward with staff's moving forward with this i was trying to figure out what what exactly you, you were moving forward with you're talking about your stick you believe in this document is what you're saying the way it's written i was referring to the preservation document that the commission preservation commission's working on that staff's on board Generally, there may be some additional tweaks. We don't have all the details. I know Bruce said that he supports it, and we're trying to move forward to get okay. some, some good criteria. That's what I refer to. Great not clarification. To, not good. to overall changes that are presented tonight, just specifically that. I know staff's moving forward on theirs, too, but I was referring specifically to the preservation uh, standards that has been worked so on. So then that would, uh, if I understand right, would coincide with our motion then? I couldn't answer that one. I'll let Joy and Sandra. It, it, the way I understood uh, Chair LaFasso's, I mean, uh, Commissioner LaFasso's motion is to recommend to move the amendments forward, taking out the two that the preservation, the one about the landmark structure and then the one and two family, um, all at director level. Those were the two, those two specific recommended code changes that the recommendation of the Plan Design Commission is uh, City Council approve everything but those two. Don't include those two. And that's what you were saying. You guys are on board with working towards right. that. And that the staff and, well, and just, Bruce. Just to clarify, what you're talking about these those two specific. Right. I'm not addressing those two specific issues that are in the amendments. I was just talking about the design standards that are being worked on with commission. That's the one Bruce said. We're definitely on board. We're moving forward. Unrelated to this, I think Bruce also in the staff report says he strongly recommends to do right, what to, to go to the staff level for these that don't need entitlements in a historic district. Okay. So and for clarity, he, he does strongly support that and would prefer that that would move forward. Okay. And then, um, so I understand it right. So obviously if somebody wanted to put a garage on, that that would be, uh, if it goes by the way this is written uh, currently, that that would be that have uh, staff approval, but it was given earlier in public testimony, the Capitol Avenue. Are you familiar with the Capitol Avenue project? That to I me went <laughs> asked for a whole bunch of deviations. Correct. So that's, that would not apply. No. So that's just uh, it, not. Lewis had made an excellent point that uh, that I should have shared, which is we were talking strictly about something that met met all the standards. If if it doesn't meet. St that's just the, the starting point. If it didn't meet standards and needed deviations, it automatically has to go to a public hearing. So it would be going to a director level or higher, depending on what the deviations were. This, 
This basically was for the for the new construction that met everything, including Secretary of Interior standards, according to what uh, Carson would have, our preservation director would have looked at. That's what that part. And I just want to make the one comment. I know Bruce is work. They're working on uh, what Lewis is talking about, but you know his recommendation is very much to go forward with as it's amended, as we're proposing it amended now. Okay. Um, and just uh, other comment is uh, I'm happy to see all the work that you've done and I'm happy to see more streamlining anything to make it easier to do business in in our city and get more things built especially housing thank you thank you Commissioner Colville I concur uh, Commissioner Yee thank you and let me just try let me understand what's going on if absent the motion before us which incorporates two of the four elements that the preservation commission's ad hoc committee is recommending how would that have been coordinated or changed because this particular item is ahead of that preservation commission's uh, 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 action would we have come back at some point? Would somebody have come back at some point to coordinate the two? It, well, if if we took this forward and, and they were, you know, we, ultimately we, it's up to council. But if council were to delete those, then someone and waiting till this is done, then it would either need to be incorporated in whatever they bring forward or be brought back as a separate standalone ordinance. So if, again, absent the motion before us, if it would have gone forward as staff originally recommended, at some point there would have to be some action to coordinate the two documents. Uh, yes, the, uh, what would happen is if there was the, the document coming forward were, if there's a conflict, then there would be a discussion as to what would go forward and, or, or how it would change, or that document would then change what we've okay. adopted if that was the case. And so... The motion then, in part, is indication of support for these two, uh, the two out of the four at least, uh, being presented by the ad hoc committee. And if it doesn't go forward, then we change it back the other way. If the ad hoc, if these two provisions are not supported in the final iteration, then this recommendation, this change would have to be reversed. Get it to At some point, there's going to be a day of reckoning where the two documents need to be coordinated. Is that correct? Uh, yes. Okay. Yeah, I hear that. Okay. To the one item about two different materials on the side, as I understand the Secretary of Interior's guidelines, it's so that there is not a mistaken impression on what is historic as opposed to what has been added at some subsequent date. So you can see right. the historic portion and appreciate what it is. And whatever was added was added for whatever reason, but it should not be confused. So let me apologize for not necessarily understanding the context of that particular provision. That particular provision, and it was stated somewhere, and I missed it, my bad. That is to restate the Secretary of Interior's guidelines as it applies to an historic structure. This applies to, does this apply to what we see before us? 
only to historic structures or structures in general? All of these changes apply citywide. So we're talking about citywide, which would include any his That's the correct, historic. That's correct, but it could include. But the bulk of what that was written that Bruce wrote in terms of uh, and from things we've seen that projects that come through would be to identify, uh, like I said, to, as he explained it to me, to make bulk control three-dimensional. And that was the changes had to do with the sides, the sides of building. And I know Lewis can talk to that much better than I can. And the question that came up at the Preservation Commission was the issue, uh, one of the, in the language, I can get to it, that talked about the, the two materials and what would that do oh, to structures? But that's, that's not quite my question. Oh, okay, sorry. So the non-historic building, this is not limited to historic buildings. It, you, you, I think you just right. said it applies to structures throughout. Right. Where I think the Secretary of Interiors, which is where the spirit of this requirement comes from, only applies to certain structures. Why is it here and why is it not limited to historic structures? Why do we have this applied to non-historic structures? Which I think, which I think I'm hearing you say that it does apply to non-historic structures. Why, why not a caveat that says, no, it's only to certain structures? The intent was for, the intent was, yes, it was to apply to all structures citywide. And then the discussion. I, I, I challenged that assumption, so I guess is what, why do we have that restriction on non-historic structures? Why is it that broad? I apologize. I've been trying to find this section so I could comment on it. Uh, all control, is it page 40? Yes, near the bottom. And it's phrased a little differently from the ad hoc committee's language and the language you actually see in the staff report. Yes. And then talking about you have to have the two the different materials. Right. That's you know, what talking right. about. Right. This is an attempt to, to the problem we have with the two-story all stucco sides of a building. So we, we do this great bulk control. Um, it looks fine from the front, but then you turn the corner, you've got 35, 40 feet of two stories of stucco. So this was an attempt to break up the mass in some way. This may be too specific, and it may be too, you know, it may drill down too specifically, and I maybe that's, that's what I'm I hearing from you. I think that's my point, is right. that I understand the Secretary of Interior's goal. I don't think that that goal, as articulated in that provision, is universally applicable. I think there's another way to bifurcate the two situations we have and be a little more specific. One is historic and one is not. We're addressing it as if it's all the same, and we're addressing it as a mandate. There is no discretion in this, and it's trying to avoid something, but then the unintended consequence is that it restricts everything else. And so I think it's worthy, hopefully of the time I'm speaking on it, but I think it's worthy of reconsideration because, again, I think there's an unintended consequence to what this thing provides. I think that, that's, a, that's a good point. You know, it specifies the 400, at least six inches of depth. So it's, it, it tries to come up with a solution for all of these. Right. So perhaps some language from the commission that would say amend it to be to create 
you know, to, to modify site elevation so there's articulation with differences in material, planar changes, without giving the more specific numbers. And, and to your comment of language suggested by the commission, I think one of our uh, thou shall avoids is uh, crafting language from dice. I think the intent, I think you understand my concern. I would leave it to the maker of the motion to provide maybe some direction as to staff modifying this in some fashion to actually address the concerns. Absolutely. And I think there are two different concerns, as I said. No, I didn't mean that you would necessarily craft the language, but uh, request that the staff come up with language, I'm understanding fine. the concern. Mm -hmm. And if the maker and seconder of the motion can simply try to summarize what I've just gone through, I would appreciate that. <laughs> Consideration of that. Thank Let's you. <laughs> Commissioner LaFosse, are you? Uh, thank you, Mr. Chair. Happy to rise to Commissioner Yee's challenge. Um, I appreciate the comments by Commissioners Coville and Yee about how what we're talking about here intersects with what Preservation Commission is talking about. I think that got exhausted. Uh, oddly, um, I didn't follow the line that Commissioner Yee was talking about until Commissioner Yee raised it, but with the appropriate approach of giving staff flexibility to draft language. Mr. Sanchez, I wonder if it would be simplest to just rewrite that provision to say something to the effect of bulk control standards in the ordinance shall not conflict with uh, historic building standards. Since you told me that the reason for putting it in there because was that there was a conflict. No, this, it, the discussion about the historic part, was it was never even brought up until we went to preservation, and that's where this, discussion came it was always the way it was written was always um, Bruce's intent for all buildings all buildings period historic or not it wasn't separated out so I mean we can he, he can take it back and explain you know what it is that the concern is and what you would like to yeah. see it change we're, we're we're going down a rabbit hole I'm I uh, I uh, I don't need to do that. Um, if the motion can be amended to incorporate uh, staff's consideration of all of the comments that Commissioner Yee made and flexibility to amend the language as staff concludes what's the best answer is, we don't need to hash it out here. I, I concur. I think we, we know the direction to not be so specific and that will help both on the design review side and the preservation side because they did have concerns with the with that language also in other words what he said <laughs> i'm hoping my seconder will uh, acquiesce you know. <laughs> i will second that Thank you, Vice Chair Lucian. Uh, Commissioner Wong Conley. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chair. I have to say that as I read through the, uh, the red line documents and listened to um, the, the debate, I, I felt like uh, there is a broader policy change, uh, the shift. And I'm all for um, supporting the info projects, but I, uh, based on what the, 
the change proposed, I think there are really people will be in fact impacted. For example, the people who live in R1 zone that adjacent to the R3. And uh, I have a big concern about the eliminating the 25 feet street, um, street side setback. And so I, um, I, I felt it justified to have more people being not notified and be involved in the process to comment and to get their input. There should be a due process. So I do not, uh, uh, I will not support the motion. Thank you. Thank you, Commissioner Wong Conley. Any other commissioner questions, comments? Seeing no other public comment, uh, we'll go to the, the vote. But before we go to the vote, I just want to thank the staff for the 131 pages of fun. Uh, I know current planning takes all the attention, and everyone likes to see the new projects, the new 24-hour Starbucks. But um, the work you do behind the scenes is really important. As Commissioner Colville said, we want to make sure the, the code is easy to understand. You don't need a lawyer. Even though we have great lawyers from McGeorge School of Law in our presence, uh, you don't need a lawyer to find it. We want to make sure that residents and business people is streamlined, easy to understand, and also balance the needs of historic preservation. So just to thank you for the hard work you're doing. Commissioner Yee? Aye. Juan Connolly? No. Lucky Bomb? Aye. Farrell? Aye. Lindsay? Aye. Coville? Aye. Also? Aye. Vice Chair Lucian? Aye. Chair Burke? Aye. Motion passes. Thank you. Next on the agenda, any other public comments? Seeing none. Any other member comments? Seeing none. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you, commissioners.